Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 214 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's January 31st, 2022. I'm Bobby Chesney. It's actually February 1st and I'm Steve Vladek. Wait, wait, okay, start this over. Shit. (laughs) (laughs) Or should we leave it there? You know what? Let's not start this over. That's great. (laughs) All We're right. human. What day is this? I don't know. Is it Monday? <laughs> it's crowd, it's is it Groundhog Day? <laughs> That's awesome. I should I should overlay some uh, hey. I should overlay some Sunny and Share on top of it. <laughs> I got you, babe. I was so happy to have actually written up the intro for once, so I can just read it out. That's awesome. All right. Well, whatever day it is, uh, here we are. Who are you? <laughs> uh, who am I? I think I said I'm Steve Vladek. Did you? Um, what day is it, Steve? I, I'm someone who knows what day it is. <laughs> you got that on me, that's for sure. Episode 214, what day is it anyway? Yeah, that actually is the leading contender for show title. Um, oh, man, that's so funny. Well, hey, we're back and it's not even been a month. I was going to say, we actually almost recorded last... We had time to record last week. We just didn't think we had enough to talk about. I know. Is this the Fortnite episode in the original sense of Ooh, that? Oh, I guess so. <laughs> it's been a Fortnite been a, it, it has been a fortnight. Hey, Steve, you taught in person today. I did. Uh, how was your first class? Um, it was weird. I had not been in a room with that many people in a class in, you know, almost two years. Um, how many students do you have in fed courts? Uh, 60 some odd, 62, 63, yeah. somewhere in the low 60s. Yeah. Um, it was good. I, you know, I enjoyed it. It was, it was unfortunate that today was like one of the two worst topics um, that I teach in the whole semester. Today we did severability and facial versus as applied challenges. Oof, that's a lot. To, I, is it an hour and 15 minutes? Uh, 107. Yeah, and and those, a lot. those are some dense doctrines. But, you know, the, the, I've, I've figured out over the years how to teach them a little bit better by using cases that are actually really interesting and ex- or where they really make a difference and it's really accessible. Yeah, so you can have the doctrine be interesting. You can have the case be interesting. You can't always have them both. Well, you know, in national security law, you could often, you could often have both. True. Absolutely. Um, that, that, segue. That's probably why we do this. Segway alert. Segway alert. Uh, Okay, today we're going to talk about an interesting development involving a change in the Justice Department's position in Nashiri, involving the use of statements that trace back to uh, torture or enhanced interrogation techniques or whatever it is that we're going to call it or refer to there. Um, We've got the arrest of a woman from Kansas who became, uh, however improbably, a uh, some sort of quasi battalion commander for the Islamic states. We'll talk about the uh, the situation with Allison Fluke Ekran and and some of the questions that are not that we don't yet know the factual answers to that are very interesting about the circumstances before she ended up in federal court, but after she was detained. Um, I have to say, I'm sorry. This this is yeah. totally inappropriate. But the way you said her name made me have a total Arrested Development moment. <laughs> like Tobias Funke? <laughs> well, it could. I thought, okay, so I don't know the proper pronunciation. It's F L U K E dash Ekran. Is it could fluke, be fluke or Fluke? And I thought Fluke sounded a little comical, not realizing the comedy gold that awaited if I went with Fluke. That's what I'm saying. You're, not, you're on a roll today. <laughs> uh, we were, as you know, because I, I, I tweeted you a screenshot, uh, we watched uh, Pitch Perfect 2 the other night, and uh, there's, a, there's a great. Uh, cameo not more than a cameo by david cross isn't that the guy's name i think that, is that right i think so who plays tobias funke but of um, course you just but of course oh that's right he's the mc in the in the in the in the in the, in the whatever party yeah exactly <laughs> but mostly you're just you're just teasing me because you know that my you know um the 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 the, the only other woman i'm in love with besides karen is is in pitch perfect too 
That is why I did do it. Um, and it, speaking of your wonderful wife, she has big news. Share it speaking with me. Oh, another segue. Um, yeah. yeah. So uh, Karen, uh, Karen started a new job today. She actually is slightly switching careers a bit. So Karen's been a practicing lawyer ever since law school. Um, for the last three years, she's been a partner at this really cool mid-sized firm here in Austin. Um, and she's actually moving over into the universe of legal recruiting starting today. She's opening the Texas office for Whistler Partners, which is this really cool sort of small dynamic legal recruiting firm that really specializes on the tech side of things. All right. So you, if you are a practicing lawyer who's sitting there listening to this instead of billing your hours, uh, it could be that Karen is who you need to talk to Seriously. to deal with your career. Uh, angst Karen at WhistlerPartners.com. Yeah, wait, say it again clearly. I talked over you. That's right. Karen at WhistlerPartners.com. This episode is sponsored by Whistler Partners. Whistler. Uh, <laughs> that's great. Hey, Karen, congratulations. That's very exciting. Um, and uh, you've been busy. Speaking of, you know, uh, practicing law, you've actually been practicing some law. And you, you know, on this show, we've celebrated your defeats a fair amount. <laughs> <laughs> but now we get to lament a victory. Hey, congratulations. Uh, you had I a, won one. You won one. <laughs> um yeah, later in the show, we will talk about uh, um, uh, civil suits against private military contractors and the Texas Supreme Court's decision in Preston versus M1 Support Services. Does this, does this sort of uh, presage a sort of a Bengals level turnaround where you go from <laughs> only a few wins to being in the Super Bowl soon? So I, you know, if, I, if we went back and listened to our playoff predictions, I feel like I actually did okay. I feel like I actually thought the Rams might... Uh, I might have said the Rams. I, don't I think remember. you did. I think you did. All right. So we'll well, I, did not say, I did not say the Bengals. No, not many did. Uh, <laughs> there was money to be made on the battle of the four seeds. All right, and so we're going to keep this one short because we actually have a <laughs> feel for us, my friends. We have a faculty meeting to attend shortly. We're, so, off, to great, we're off to a great start on keeping it short. <laughs> All right, so without further ado, what was the DOJ position on this admissibility of statements issue in Nashiri? What was it previously? How did it seem to come to a head in a complex way? And what has now changed? So it was a little bit, um, the position had sort of evolved, right? So um, initially, right, the government had obtained a ruling in the commissions that certain statements that were derived from torture could potentially be admissible. Um, that set off, Bobby, as you recall, and as we've discussed, a firestorm and a couple of sort of pretty forceful appeals. Um, the government then took the position once the Biden administration came in, I think this is right in the CMCR, the Intermediate Military Commission Court, that it was not going to continue to push these particular statements um, for their admission, but that it wasn't giving up the ghost on the admission of some statements. Kind of, um, it, I'm sorry if I kind of miss this and you said it, but am I right that the the window that the prosecution had in mind, that the sort of the eye the needle they were threading was not to use these statements for the truth of the matter asserted as such, but as impeachment evidence. And they, they were trying to say, like, look, we're not we're not trying to whole hog make these admissible. Right. They, were trying to, they were trying to have them admissible for certain pretrial proceedings. And the trial judge's ruling siding with the government relied on the fact that the prohibition on the use of torture derived evidence in the commissions is about trial. And so ah, the notion, that's right? the distinction, right? So it's um, like okay, but we can use them for some preliminary litigation, but right. not in the. Not and so that the, has that had touched off a firestorm. The Biden administration's first position had been that we're not going to we're not going to continue to push for these statements to be admitted at this time, but we're not you know surrendering the possibility that we fight for it later. And then on uh, Monday yesterday in the D.C. Circuit, the Biden administration went all in on saying, "No, we are repudiating, um, you know, that we have the ability that we should be allowed to use these statements." 
Right. So do you think this, uh, how much of a blow is this to any of the cases? Uh, my sense is that there was never going to be any attempt to uh, go into the actual commission proceedings with this kind of evidence. So I don't think it goes in any significant way to the viability of the cases, or does it does it potentially submarine something that was going to happen pre-trial that would then have a huge spillover effect on the trial themselves? I, you know, I think that's an interesting question. And Bobby, I don't think it's one that we know enough to answer. Yeah. Um, I will say that I do think that it increases marginally the odds that if these cases ever actually go to trial and if, and if they're actually and if they're actually convictions, it marginally increases the chance that those convictions might withstand appeal. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's true. So from, so from the prosecution perspective, this may have been a very wise tactical retreat. Well, but as, so I want to say, so all credit to Tess Bridgman, um, actually my successor as the as the co-EIC um, of Just Security. Um, Tess actually, I mean, Tess was really the first who was out with this this morning on Just Security. And as her post, I think, walks through, um, yes, all credit to the Biden administration, but it took this getting elevated to senior policymaker level um, for the administration to get this right. <laughs> um, like, I still have some real qualms with the the initial position taken in the military commission and even the sort of intermediate, you know, we won't fight this one, but we won't give up position in the CMCR. Yeah, I look, I, I'm kind of actually with you on those latter two points. I'm not actually surprised it takes a, a decent amount of time for this sort of thing to bubble up. And I'm I'm more concerned with what are they what is their final considered position and is that the right one? Um, it seems like they kind of give themselves a bit of a self-inflicted wound though by dragging it out to the extent they did by initially backing off but trying to preserve the principle, which is guaranteed, as we all know, that kind of move is guaranteed to please nobody. Um but there it is, um, our latest Gitmo check-in. Anything else happening at Gitmo? Or how many new judges were there this week? Or did did we not have new judges this week? No new judges. I don't believe it. We just haven't heard about it yet. Um, anything else happening from there? I mean, you know, the, the last point Tess makes in her post, which I think is right, is that every time we get another one of these big developments in the commissions, it's worth just re, re sort of refocusing the conversation, sort of reminding everyone that like, you know, we don't have to like keep doing this. Like we don't have to keep pounding our heads into the wall. Like there are ways to actually make the commissions go away if the government wants to make it a priority. It's just that, you know, they don't. No, you know, the, yeah, the, we've talked about this so many times. Yes, we have. Obama, I, I, mean, I realize. Yeah, the Obama administration, far from even being interested in doing that, really leaned into trying. Yes. It, and they gave it the old college try. Right. That was, well, but, was a but, very I mean, conspicuous effort to try to see can you can you mend it, not end it, and make it work right. And they brought in you know terrific talent like Mark Martins and others, um, and cleaned up the process, got clear statutory authorization, and then it still was utterly gummed up. The Biden administration seems to basically be spending little or no capital on this particular topic. There's no sign of interest in shutting it down. Or pushing it forward, it's just sort of being there's a there's a benign neglect model I think at work here. Is that fair to say? I, yeah, and I, and I, I you know I don't think I've been shy that I re, I really do think that like one of the signal you know mistakes that I think the Obama administration made in this space was you know leading into the commissions in 2009. But yeah, well, what's funny is they went down that path. This is when you live through these events. You can remember the sequencing better than trying to reconstruct it after the fact. And as you and I know, they were already leaning into this way before the uh, the question of moving KSM to New York City for a federal district trial 
uh, federal district court trial blew up politically so so badly that they they singed their fingers and never wanted to go back to the topic, right? Um, so it's not like that. It's not like the lean in into military commissions for the early, first term Obama administration was a product of the KSM blow up. No, it was, it was something they were they were doing anyways. They were trying Agreed. more of an all the above approach. In retrospect, at least, uh, a mistake. Couldn't agree with you more. Okay, how about some? It's been a while since we've done a national security division roundup. So uh, there, there has been so much. We're not going to try to round it up. So actually, the term roundup does not apply at all. <laughs> spotlight, national security division spotlight, spotlight on the uh, the charges now unsealed against Allison Fluke or Fluke <laughs> Ekren, uh, a woman from Kansas, an American citizen who ended up going to the territory controlled by the Islamic State and court and, and basically uh, taking up arms. She's been charged with a raft of uh, providing material support charges and conspiring to provide material support charges. Uh, it's pretty fascinating, but here's the here's the line in the in the limited information we've got. This is from the press statement from DOJ that I think you and I both were tantalized by. Uh, Fluke Ekren was previously apprehended in Syria, previously apprehended was previously apprehended in Syria. So passive, passive voice. voice. And passive voice, of course, obscures the actor in the, in this situation. <laughs> like, in, like in Marbury, where Marshall says, at which point the great seal was affixed. <laughs> oh, that is one of my favorites. I always ask my class, by the way, who affixed <laughs> that seal? Hmm, Mr. Marshall, hmm. I presume. So hmm. um, we don't, it doesn't say, it's not been disclosed, who captured her, and then in what circumstance... It then says, and transferred into the custody of the FBI yesterday. Okay, so who did the initial capturing? Where was she then held? How long was she held? At what point, if any, did any U.S. government right. agents, well, other so, than the FBI, right. have Tra- involvement here? Transferred into the custody of the FBI, they don't say from whom. Like right, they, don't yeah. say, they don't say from whose custody. Right, right. So this is super interesting, and it ties back to God knows how long ago episodes when um, – under the Trump administration, when we had that precipitous pullback of U.S. Uh, engagement and the uh, rush to secure at least some high-value detainees that uh, SDF forces had been holding, and and one wonders, like, had, has she been one of those individuals for a long time, maybe in U.S. custody? Maybe not. Maybe she's been simply in SDF custody this whole time. Maybe she was apprehended only, you know. A short time ago, we don't we don't know these things, but it's super interesting, and it's a reminder that there's a zone, a, a gray zone, if I can borrow the phrase, of uh, capture and interrogation activity involving activity by, with, and through local allies. Sometimes where they really are, the local allies really are the ones who are the moving agents and the deciding uh, officials. And sometimes it's more cooperative and there's a whole spectrum that runs from things we had no idea were happening to things we were intimately involved in, perhaps uh, orchestrating. Is this somewhere on that spectrum? Who knows? But it's super interesting because if the answer actually is that, no, there, there was a, a consistent amount of U.S. involvement or substantial amount of U.S. involvement in arranging, orchestrating, administering uh, captivity and interrogation, well, you know, this is a big deal. She's a U.S. citizen. It's a big deal anyway. It's an interesting topic, but it's a really big deal because she's a citizen. I suspect the answer, Steve, is that in in every formal sense, we may have known she was in SDF custody, but we were at pains not to be the formal custodians and maybe didn't know early on that it was even happening. But we clearly so, found out at some point. 
put together say. the case. And then once the case was put together, then the transition occurs. And so this may be what you and I have talked about is the hybrid model, This in which we haven't seen a lot of in recent years, the hybrid model in which non-law enforcement means are used uh, at the point of capture for obvious reasons in this case, and to administer some period of incapacitation and interrogation. And then eventually there's sort of the, the clean team handover to the FBI and a resort for long-term detention purposes, resort to the federal criminal justice system rather than, you know, military commissions for reasons we've already discussed today. Does that seem right to you? It seems possible. Um, yeah. But I mean, you know, is it possible that she was actually in some kind of U.S. detention for at least some of that period? Definitely possible. Kind of a Doe v. Mattis situation without the and, Doe v. Mattis. And wouldn't that be interesting if that were true? That would be. I, I, bet it's, I bet it's not the case because I think that the Doe v. Mattis experience, which remember, friends, that that had come about, by all accounts, it came about when unexpectedly a dual citizen, a guy with U.S. citizenship, who, what did, I, I forget, what did we finally find out? He was Saudi, was it? Yeah. Um, uh, ended up in, it was SDF or other local custody, and then kind of got dumped into the hands of some special operators. And the U.S. government found themselves holding this guy, trying to figure out how can they just put him back to Saudi Arabia or somewhere else, but not to the United States where he actually you know, hadn't been since he was a child. Um, and that became a bit of a protracted problem for them. And I think overall an unpleasant, unwelcome experience with, with no significant strategic or operational value to, to have incurred all that cost. So I'm doubtful that was the case here either. But I, I wonder if there wasn't some period where um, there was a fair amount of intermixed ultimate functional responsibility while they were making sure that they could get the case prosecutable because she's just an American citizen. And so she was going to have to come back here at some point. And now they got the charges in place. And it sounds like from the description in the complaint, uh, they have any number of witnesses, eyewitnesses to things that will be held against her. So that that trial itself will end up being very interesting, depending on who those witnesses are and how their testimony is presented. There's a whole another set of issues there. Is this is this a bunch of eyewitness testimony secured while in while in SDF custody? This could get really interesting. Suffice to say, lots to watch for. Bingo. All right. Uh, let's talk private military contractors <laughs> and their litigation woes and <laughs> the charges and the charges you lead uh, to further those woes. Uh, I wouldn't say lead, but but assist. You participate in the causes. Yeah. Uh, talk talk about. Uh, so you won in Preston in the Texas Supreme Court, Supreme Court of Texas. Somehow. Okay. Let's. Give us a scoop. What's the story? Reframe that case for us. So we had talked a bit back in September about this case because I argued it to the Texas Supreme Court on September 14th. Um, really, really short version. Um, the <clears throat> um, case rises out of a uh, military helicopter crash off the Virginia coast. Um, the crash killed several of the passengers. The crash was allegedly caused by negligence on the part of the maintenance contractor who, at least according to the allegations in the complaint, should have uncovered in its regular inspection the problem in the wiring that led to the crash. Um, the um, the contractor's defense was that the suit was barred by the political question doctrine because they are a military contractor and they were operating um, along, you know, cons well, consistent with this little loaded. They're operating under a military contract um, and they won on that in the lower courts. Um, and so we went to the Texas Supreme Court basically on 
whether the political question doctrine forecloses such a suit. Folks who under folks who are familiar with the political question doctrine may not understand why this has anything to do with the political question doctrine. But the Texas Supreme Court has a decision from gosh, 2018 or 2019 called Freeman, where it extended the political question doctrine to certain tort suits against military contractors, at least in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, But by an eight nothing vote, the court said here that our claims do not run into the political question doctrine. And so remands for further proceedings at trial. Well, well, um, what that's not the only iron you have in the fire either. Yeah. So the, the sort of on the, on the, you know, that's on the political question doctrine front. The other, the, one of the issues that we're going to, I think, be confronting and remand in Preston is the so-called Boyle defense. Bobby, your favorite decision, decision, Boyle versus United Technologies Corporation. That's a good time. Um, it's really not. <laughs> so Boyle, Boyle is this 1988 Supreme Court decision um, where Justice Scalia writes a majority opinion. Boyle's also a helicopter crash. And in Boyle, the plaintiffs tried to sue the, the Sikorsky subcontractor that was responsible for building the helicopter. Bobby, they built the helicopter so that the door only opened outwards, um, which if you crash into the water is a real problem. Oh, um, yeah. Right? That, so, that, yeah, that must be... I mean, I'm, I know nothing about helicopters. Is it not like universally the case? Are they normally not designed that way? I think there's a distinction between helicopters that are and are not supposed to fly over water. Um, yeah, that's interesting. But anyway, whatever the sort of merits of helicopter design. So in Boyle, you know, the federal law has nothing to say. There's no statute, Bobby, that governs the tort liability of federal contractors. Um, right. That's usually left to state law. And in Boyle, Justice Scalia fashions a federal common law. Um, defense for federal military contractors in those cases in which allowing tort liability would end up requiring the federal government to second guess discretionary designed design decisions, which is antithetical, he says, to the purpose of the discretionary function exception to the Federal Tort Claims Act. Basically, if the suit's going to pass the costs of a discretionary design decision up the chain of the federal government, that's barred by federal common law policy. And has there been any ferment eroding this precedent? Not eroding, in fact, amplifying, right? So um, Scalia in later years would say it was his worst decision, um, right? Hard to see how like the federal courts making up a rule when this, when Congress has said nothing is consistent with his and the other conservatives approach to contemporary judicial lawmaking as a phenomenon. Um, but the real phenomenon here, Bobby, is the extension of Boyle into a different context, um, not the discretionary function piece of the FTCA, but the combatant activity yeah. piece of the FTCA. And so starting, there's a 2009 DC Circuit decision called Saleh versus Titan Corporation, where the panel was Silberman, Kavanaugh, and Garland. How's that for a, a triumvirate? Our cast. Um, and the panel split two to one on whether the sort of Boyle-like reasoning should be extended to the combatant activity exception in a case arising out of Abu Ghraib torture. I was going to say that, um, that that's coming out of uh, the detention facility, right? Yes. Sidencorp provided some of the linguists. The linguists and at least some of the other sort of staff personnel. Yeah. Um, and, and so the, the, the way, Titan Corp so totally sounds like, you know, like the made up company in, in like a Pixar movie or something. Or Austin Powers. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, anyway, so so the Saleh, by a two to one vote, the district said, yes, it extends the combatant activity exception, even though, Bobby, the concern about, you know, passing costs up on discretionary decisions is not present in the combatant activity context. Um, Judge Garland wrote a very long dissent, which was rare for him. Um, and there's been a bit of a split. 
in the lower courts, not about whether Boyle extends to combatant activities, but about when it does. Um, so there's a Second Circuit decision from late last fall called um, Badia versus Midwest Air Traffic Control Services, where the Second Circuit declined to extend Badia. Let me give you the fact pattern, right? Um, a cargo plane crashed while on approach to uh, um, Kabul, Afghanistan International Airport, to the major international airport in Kabul. Okay. Um, and the lawsuit is against the military contractor who was operating the control tower on the ground that the crash was caused, at least in part, by negligence on the part of the ATC operators. I hope this wasn't some 5G thing causing a problem for the... This was, this was pre-5G. Oh, good. Um, but so, 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 the, so you know, one of the threshold questions here is, like, is a military contractor operating the air control tower at a civilian airport in, in the capital... That's far-fetched for a combat activity. This is... Thank you. This is where I am. Yeah, um, dude, I, I think... I find you in a very reasonable place on that one. So anyway, so um, so the 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 co- the contractors who lost in the Second Circuit um, have filed a cert petition, um, and I now represent the respondents, the plaintiffs, the victims of the crash, um, who are trying to convince the Supreme Court, in the first instance, to not grant certiorari at all. But if they're going to grant cert, to at least you know restore some coherence to this doctrine. Well, you, you know, I love a good debate over the boundaries of doctrinal categories. And so combat activities is a, <laughs> that's a good one. But uh, you know, what's interesting about it, there's not a lot of case law on, on sort of the, that what is and what is not a combat. I mean, it's clear that combat activity means more than just military activity. Yeah. It's interesting. It's both less and more than, than the more simplistic. So it can't just be that anything that someone does who's military therefore counts as combat activity. It's also the case that not everything that's combat activity has to be performed by the military, but it's also the case that not every military contractor who's performing some function in a geographic zone where the military is present because somewhere in that area is combat activity is by extension also a military activity. It it seems like that proves too much. So, I mean, what's interesting here is that like if, if the, so imagine if the federal, imagine if the military had been operating in the control tower instead of a contractor, right? That for various reasons... Take that out, yeah. Right? Um, then there'd be no claim, Bobby, but not because it's a combatant activity. There'd be no claim That's because right. the federal government's not liable for torts that occur on foreign soil. Right, right. And and so the, the fact that they've, by outsourcing that particular function to a contractor, created some litigation exposure... It's neither here nor there from the point of view of what counts as a combat activity. That, so this is our, right. So our position is like, yes, there's no question that outsourcing creates litigation exposure. If insofar as that's a policy problem, it's a policy problem that ought to be resolved by Congress. That, so that's exactly what I was going to say is I can see the argument for not if one assumes that sometimes that's desirable. You don't want litigation exposure to be an undue deterrent to actually doing the thing that's most efficient for our overseas activities. So. Congress might want to amend things so as to take away that deterrent effect. Well, the irony is, so so the the, the very first time that I was ever on a panel with DC with with little known DC Circuit Judge Brett Kavanaugh um, was that I want to say it was like either the 2010 or 2011 annual meeting of the Association of American Law Schools, um, oh. and one of the things we were debating was Sale, um, and and you know Judge Kavanaugh's defense of Sale, which I think was entirely plausible as a normative matter is that it just doesn't make sense to allow state tort law onto a, onto a foreign battlefield. I kind of remember this. Were we, was that in San Diego or maybe it was in New Orleans? Or I something? think it was in DC. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but anyway, but so, but this is actually, I mean, this is, so this is why I find this case super fascinating, right? Because on the one hand, it raises the question of should courts be making that decision in lieu of Congress? Right. But there's the antecedent question of whether this, the control tower of the civilian airport in Kabul at a point where there are no, you know, at a point pre, pre-collapse, right? Pre any argument that Kabul is right. an active combat zone. Right. Right. Whether that is also, whether that's the battlefield. I mean, we're back to like the whole, like, where's the battlefield conversation. That's wild. Okay. Super interesting. That's really interesting. I see why you get into these cases. So anyway, so our brief in opposition is due as of right now, February 23rd. I think we're going to get an extension to March 25th. Um, my best bet, Bobby, is that actually the court neither grants nor denies, but calls for the views of the Solicitor mm-hmm, General, mm-hmm. and that you know what the SG says might have a lot to do with with what the court ends up deciding to do. Very interesting. Okay, keep us posted. I will, <laughs> even if you didn't want me to. I probably <laughs> whether I want to or not, well, I might as well ask. I don't have a poker face. <laughs> okay, I think we've run the table on all our substantive topics that we were playing movies in today. So, friends, if you're not down with the the that was quick call talk. Uh, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah, I want to talk about Munich first. Okay, well, yeah, hey, we'll keep it the frivolity. Not- Before we do sports ball. Yeah, there's, so you mentioned earlier something about a Munich movie or movie, Munich thing on Netflix. And I said, oh, what, what is uh, the Spielberg movie about? Of course, I'm thinking Olympics. I'm teaching terrorism. Uh, Adam and I are teaching our counterterrorism law class. Uh, so Munich Olympics. But it's a different Munich movie. It's that other use in international relations talk about Munich. It's appeasement. Uh, what's going on? I don't know about this. Although I think that I think the Eric Bono one is also on Netflix now. Oh, um, is it? No, no, that's going to cause confusion. A lot of people are going to be watching some strangely confusing things. So this is a movie about the sort of the build up to and the actual piece of it. I think it's a it's a somewhat fictionalized account. I don't know if it's totally fictionalized. Um, I'm going to my bookshelf behind me because I'm going to pull a book off, and I wonder if it's maybe uh, an adaptation of this. So talk about this while I grab the book. Well, I want to find, let me see, if, uh, Munich Netflix movie. It's called Munich, The Edge of War. I think it is adapted from a book. Uh, um, yeah. uh, a German-British drama film directed by, uh, uh, it's based on the 2017 novel Munich by Robert Harris. That's it? I wish I could find here. Of course, it's a radio show, as it were, so it doesn't matter say, where I'm holding. I can just say, like, Bobby's holding here it is, right here. Um, so I read this book. Rob, Robert Harris's books are really good. He's, he's, a, he's a good historical fiction page turner with an interest in things like we like that book's a lot of fun with some interesting characters. So I'll just say that you tell me more about what you've seen about the show. Uh, the movie. Um, yeah, yeah, sorry. The movie. Yeah. Um, so I, I watched, I mean, so, so the movie is, I think at least a, 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 I don't, I don't, um, it's basically about sort of efforts by two sort of two, two friends who had had a falling out at Oxford, one of whom is in the British government, one of whom is in the German government yeah. to try to like, um, prevent prevent war basically um one by stopping hitler one by actually stopping the agreement from being signed but right the the acting's very good the the sort of the the movie's made beautifully you really do feel like you're there um right hitler's awkwardness you know the brits like arrogant overconfidence um but what's fascinating the what i find wholly apart from that that's an entertaining watch what i find most fascinating is jeremy irons is brilliant but also remarkably sympathetic as Chamberlain. Oh, interesting. Well, that's a, that's that's a rich character to play. Does he say anything? Oh, you have no idea. Or anything like I mean, that. He, his Chamberlain is. It, it's like it's. I love Jeremy Irons in general, um, but but he's he, he like 
there's lots of great acting in this movie, but Jeremy Irons is is really. But so it leads to this problem, though, which is that I am one of those who buys. I'm trying to remember what, what was the. We talked about the appeasement book um, by Tim Bouverie, um, right? Um, a couple like a while back, and Tim's book is much, much. Tim's book is much more sort of traditional and being very critical of Chamberlain. That Chamberlain was naive. That he got played. That he was in over his head. All this stuff. And the the Harris account, as reflected in the movie, is that Chamberlain was actually incredibly savvy. He just thought that like he had no good choices. Yeah. Um, bad option. And so right, and so sort of you know publicly playing nice with Hitler, appeasing the Germans on the Sudeten question. You know, yes, he would say publicly. This says to me, you know, we're going to have a lasting peace, right? Between, but what he was really doing was buying the Brits two more, you know, a year plus more to get ready for the war that he knew was inevitable. So I don't, I'm no expert in this area, but I believe that there's a distinct minority position on the historiography of, yes. of his intentions and motives. Yeah. Well, and also, and also as, as, so Bouvery in his book, his, one of the things that I really took away from that was how unprepared the Germans were in the summer of 38 and the fall of 38 right. for the kind of war that would have started if war had started immediately over the Sudetenland. Um, that, that the, <laughs> the Czechs, contingency of it all. Well, indeed, and that the Czechs especially would have been a real tough nut for the Germans to crack. Um, but it just, so what the reason why I want to bring it up is whatever you think of the portrayal of Chamberlain and the rendering of Chamberlain is somewhat more sympathetic than what I think is clearly the consensus account. It is, Bobby, to me, a remarkable illustration of sort of the difficulty of doing history well when it comes to those moments, when it comes to these kinds of characters who you know, are central players at this critical moment in history and go one way versus the other. And then the fight, the historiography question, I just, I find so fascinating. Yeah, it is. And, and having read the book, not knowing about the film until you mentioned it uh, today, strong recommendation. I'm sure the movie's great too. And I reckon the book's great fun. And as always, there's stuff that they just can't get into the movie, I'm quite sure. So uh, recommend both. By the way, and I won't do any spoilers here because I know there I know there are people listening to this show who are working their way through the series, but I finally did finish uh, Leviathan Falls, the final book in the Expanse series by, mm. by the duo James S.A. Corey. And it is great. They landed the plane. They did it. Good finale. And so if you were on the fence about whether to dive into that multi-volume series, do it. Run, don't walk. Go get mm-hmm. your first copy, Leviathan Wakes, and get in there. Um, Steve, before we go, we've got to talk sports ball. We have some yet another round of exciting NFL football. What is going on? I mean, the the you know, the 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 Rams and the 49ers blew it by not having the game end on the last play. I, I, that part couldn't continue, but they and even they kept it super interesting. Yeah. Um, the Rams, I think you and I both were expecting them to they're they're they've got momentum. Matthew Stafford, I'm happy for that. I think we both called the Packers and the Bucks, you know, sort of bowing out before before people would have expected. Right. I'll claim that. I'm not gonna go back and listen to that. <laughs> um the Bengals deal, I, I think like everyone else, we were pretty surprised by that. Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase, uh, they're having themselves yet another moment. I mean, you you see the the connection between those guys is unbelievable, but it's not just him. Yeah, I mean, just got the it factor right now. But also, I mean, I think the Bengals' defense is the unit that everybody underrated in this mm-hmm. in this story. Um, you know, I, so if I, I'm sure I didn't say this when we talked about it, the couple times I really watched the Bengals this year, like 
when they're on, yeah. they're as good as anybody. And they showed that during the regular season. I mean, they won some games during the regular season. You know, it's just that like they were inconsistent. And so you you, you know, you couldn't be confident that like the good Bengals were going to show up. The uh, inconsistency, I think, is rooted in the the variability of play on their offensive line, some of which is injury related, but some is just variability. So when they're when they've got it together and things are breaking right for them, that's the key. And Joe Burrow's the quarterback you want, just like Mahomes. He's somebody who who can deal with the broken the broken pocket and still produce. So that's good for them. Um, it's it that's bad. That's bad when that's your weakness and you're going up against the Rams yeah. and Aaron Donald and company. Von Miller and all the rest are coming at you. So you do, you, you do have a sense that with two weeks to prepare, the Rams might figure out how to. Eat I the think alive. they'll figure out how how to put intense pressure. And, and Burrow's awesome, and I don't think Jamar Chase is shut downable. I mean, you you can bump and run. You could have additional cover. The things you'd have to do to really prevent him from being highly productive will leave it so wide open for the rest of the offense. Uh, and their running game, Joe Mixon and the others are quite good. So I think the Bengals will make a, a serious fight up out of it, but I think the Rams are going to take this. And so I'm calling it, uh, let's see, 38-24. Uh, wow. Um, I, yeah, that sounds right. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Expert fine-tuned analysis by the sports team at National Security Law Podcast. But this is also why, like, I don't like. This is why I don't. I don't bet sports. I mean, you yeah. know the line. You know the line in the Rams 49ers game was three and a half. Yeah. No, I. I know. I know. There's a lot of people that love gambling in general. There's people that love betting on sports. Uh, it's not really my cup of tea. More, more just enjoying the games. Uh, but it's still fun to try to just for bragging rights purposes, try to anticipate the final results. All right. Um, did we cover it all? I think we did. I think we, I mean, you know, I'm sure we left out a lot of important stuff, but hey, listeners, we keep asking you if you have topic suggestions, um, send them our way at Bobby Chesney, at Steve underscore Vladik, you know, carrier pigeon. Whatever it takes. TikTok. <laughs> yes. You'll be sure to see it there. I don't doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Should we, do we need an NSL podcast uh, TikTok account? No. <laughs> That's definitely what nobody needs. Uh, all right. So uh, till, I guess, what, maybe two weeks from today, if we're doing this Fortnite thing. Um, That's right. <laughs> anyway, he is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, I guess, you know, good luck finding calendars, people. <laughs> February, January, whatever. What's the difference anyway? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Stay safe out there. Adios.